Hello, and welcome to the podcast version of Two Rabbis And. My name is Dan Kamen, and I'm a rabbi at Congregation B'nai Amuna in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For many weeks now, every Friday, alongside my colleague, Rabbi Mark Fitzerman, I've been co-hosting a live conversation featuring guest speakers whose work, stories, and messages are worthy of our attention, especially during this extended time of pandemic and social distancing. We've spoken to doctors and lawyers, agency heads and academics, all with the hope of bringing new ideas and unique perspectives into our world, into our community, and beyond. We are excited now to debut our conversations in this new recorded form. Taken directly from our live shows, we present to you now our first episode. For more information about the synagogue and our community here in Tulsa, visit www.tulsagog.com. That's T-U-L-S-A-G-O-G-U-E dot com. If you like these recordings, consider subscribing to our feed, Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and the like. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Good morning, everyone. Veterans and newcomers, excited to see you this morning for two rabbis and the face, and she's the face in my upper right corner, although it may not be the same for everyone. In fact, it probably isn't, is Karen Kylie. Many of you know Karen, she grew up in this con congregation. She's been a leading light in the uh, agency community now for several years after a career in private industry. And Karen is here to talk about the work of Community Action Project Tulsa. She serves now as the chief executive officer of that agency, succeeding our friend Stephen Dow Karen, welcome to you. We have lots of questions for you this morning, but I wonder if you would start off with a general description of the work that the agency does. And in the meantime, I'll remind you all to begin filling the sidebar chat space with questions that you have. Rabbi Kamen and I will bounce back and forth for a little while, but then we really wanna make sure, as we always do in these sessions, to get to every question that we can. And so far that's amounted to every question asked. So use chat, we'll continually review those questions. We may put a couple of them together if there's overlap, but Karen, would you start off by describing what the agency does? Certainly. And first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to do this. I feel like I'm speaking to family, um, my literal family. My mother has joined us, but also my figurative uh, B'nai Amuna family. So this is truly an honor for me. Um, so I'm going to speak about generally what the agency does, let's say pre-COVID. Um, that just feels better to start with, but then I know you're go going to want to talk about how the past year has been. So CAP Tulsa is a community action agency. That means we are one of multiple community action agencies across the nation um, that are, were designated, honestly, during the Johnson administration, so going back quite a ways, um, as part of the war on poverty. So we are an anti-poverty organization. So as a CAA, um, we... Uh, are supposed to respond to the needs of our community 
But within that purview, it can be quite, uh, quite a wide variety of activities that CAAs do across the nation. Uh, CAP Tulsa, going back a couple of decades, um, under Stephen Dow's leadership, decided to focus the energy of our agency on early childhood education as the best opportunity to break the cycle of poverty um, and reach uh, our most vulnerable citizens at their earliest possible time of life to um, help them grow up uh, and be successful in our society. But first and foremost, to help bridge that achievement gap that we all know exists for children, low-income children, um, before they get to kindergarten. So really trying to uh, equalize and level that playing field so they could enter kindergarten ready. Um, and that's been the agency's main thrust for the last two decades. Uh, we also uh, take a two-generation approach because, of course, the children we serve don't grow up in a bubble. They're in a family um, who has varying needs and capabilities and capacities. And we try to meet the families where they are by offering a whole suite of what we call two-generation services for workforce development, English language um, development, family um, life skills, parenting skills, uh, and the like. So um, just by the numbers, we serve around 2,000 children in schools, um, 10 schools across the community. Um, so we have about 140 classrooms. Uh, we have around 430 teachers and 630 employees overall. So um, we're about a $60 million agency. And in addition to our school-based services, we also have home visiting services in a program we call Learning at Home for around 200 children who are served by a dozen highly qualified parent educators. So I'll pause there because that's a very high level of who we are, what we do, why we do it, um, and happy to answer further questions. Rabbi Kamen. Yeah, Karen, thank you so much for that overview. I think that really helps get a, a sense of kind of the, the, the big arms of, uh, of CAP. But one of the things I noticed when I moved to Tulsa, and there are a couple of uh, agencies that are like this. I feel like every time I, I drive to any new part of the city, it's like, oh, there's Family and Children's Services, and up, up there's CAP. So there are all of these buildings, all of these facilities all over, um, uh, all over the city. What's happening in a CAP building, a CAP facility? Um, and maybe um, for, a, for a family who's engaged with, uh, um, with CAP, what's their story um, and what's that experience like? Well, all of the children we serve have to income qualify for the program, meaning their family um, is generally at about 130% of the federal poverty line. Uh, federal poverty line for a family of four in 2020 is set by the federal government at $26,400 a year. Um, some of our funding does allow us to go up to 185% of the federal poverty line. But generally speaking, all of our families are low income. So those are the children we serve. We serve birth to four. Um, so we do have a number of kids who come to us very young and then stay with the program for at least two to three years. Um, and they would find um, classrooms, welcoming, beautiful classrooms that are well equipped um, with qualified teachers who have bachelor degrees and lots of hours of early childhood training and development. 
and they would re be received with a lot of warmth and love. Parents uh, check their children into the classroom so they can have close interactions with their teachers and the teachers um, maintain very strong communication lines with the families. Um, our teachers do two home visits a year, as well as two uh, teacher conferences with the families. So there's constant interaction with how their children are doing and how they're developing. Um, CAP children also all go through various health screenings. That's part of the Head Start Act. Um, so vision, hearing, um, other uh, growth uh, developmental milestones, making sure all those are being met, that their health needs are being met and they're being immunized on time and we're educating parents about that. They would also receive breakfast and lunch and a snack every day. Um, and uh, other parents are welcome to volunteer in the classroom, in fact, encouraged to do so. Uh, we are very much about forming a partnership with families Karen, just before we came on, we were all reflecting about our pre-COVID and COVID work. Can you tell us a little bit about how CAP has had to adjust its either its approach or the material management of its resources now that we're deep, deep, deep in the COVID world? Certainly. Um, so everything has changed profoundly. Um, my last day uh, working in the office full time, this is my kitchen, um, was March 13th, 2020, um, because we found ourselves on Monday, March 16th, which was spring break, um, pivoting to working from home. And that went, meant everyone. So all of our um, staff had to, of course, adjust to running the agency remotely. Um, and we were um, very fortunate, being a CAA and a Head Start grantee, to be given lots of uh, resources fairly quickly out of the CARES Act funding to be able to purchase a lot of PPE um, and to be able to uh, purchase equipment, uh, in this case, computers and dual monitors and uh, hotspots and things for teachers to be able to connect with families. Uh, we were also given a lot of funding for emergency assistance, which we had not done at such a huge scale before. We've always had some emergency assistance from United Way, uh, but we had not directly deployed that for buying food, groceries, paying rent, utilities, that sort of thing in a meaningful way. So we, um, we started that machine up remotely trying to figure out how to qualify families, how to distribute the funds safely to families. Um, lots of fun and games with gift card procurement uh, that uh, was just quite monumental, honestly. Um, we try to purchase a stack of gift cards from Walmart and it triggers all kinds of uh, fraud alerts. So um, that was challenging. Um, and we, uh, our home visitors that I mentioned um, pivoted immediately, actually during the week of spring break, doing all of their visits virtually with families quite successfully. Uh, family and Children's, who is our partner, pivoted all of their contact with families for family support as well as behavioral health um, to virtually, virtual platforms. Um, so all of this, of course, was predicated on families being able to do this and have the devices and the capabilities. So that was another 
huge opportunity to stand up a resource hub for families that they could con connect with over their phone um, or through a computer to be able to even access all of our resources and suggestions of how to navigate the pandemic. So all of that had to be stood up in very quick time um, remotely from all of our homes. So uh, the spring was quite a beehive of activity, but we're very, we're very proud of how quickly we pivoted to virtual and how much we have done for families. I just saw a report this morning, hot off the press, that we distributed over $300,000 in emergency assistance during the 2020 to um, almost 700 families um, for um, rent assistance, utilities, diapers, food. Um, and that was just a heroic effort. We never nearly broke the machine, but um, they were really proud of the work they've done. We I also made right sure our families had food. That was the other piece that we have been working with the food bank and the school districts as that has shifted <clears throat> mightily every month, making sure families had food because they weren't able to get the food from our, from our classrooms any longer. That was huge. Karen, as a tag on to that question, we're also thinking about what parts of this digital response will endure beyond the point that we return to our building. Do you have a sense of what you'll hold on to, what worked so well that you don't want to let go and you want to integrate it as part of CAP's general response? So I'm going to answer that in two ways. First, I'm going to answer it what we know we don't want to continue. Um, we had, we tried uh, in-person learning in the summer. We had to close 10 times in four weeks due to positive cases. That was last July. So numbers wise, we all know things were not as bad then as they are now. So distance learning is how we started the school year, August 31st. We pivoted to a hybrid model where the kids were coming A and B schedule. So two days uh, during the week, half the group and two days, the other half. We limped along with that through until winter break. We were gonna reopen with hybrid learning January 4th, but we can't, we, are, we have too many staff who are out on, on quarantine. So what I know we don't wanna do is full-time distance learning for young children. <laughs> it is just not what they need and it's certainly not what families need. So we are persevering through this, but our teachers, our families, the administration, we all want to get back into the classrooms because that's how children build their social emotional skills. And um, so that has just been very difficult. So um, that's what we, so I know from COVID, we, we need to get kids back in classrooms. What we will preserve, however, is the high level of family engagement we've been able to achieve with virtual visits. Um, we think that there is a place for both into the future. Um, so that we can have in-person visits, but also augment that with virtual visits because families really do like that. Um, we will also continue to have virtual um, parenting classes. Um, they are reaching folks who weren't able to come into the buildings during the day or in the evenings because of jobs or other family stressors or duties. And we're able to reach a whole new group of folks with our virtual first five years parenting curriculum. Um, and I do think there's a place for emergency assistance to continue in a meaningful way. 
Um, and we will and will probably be needed by our society after, even after 2021. And I can see us continuing to do some a lot of direct work in that sphere. Rabbi. Uh, maybe a, a similar question, but um, reflecting on the moment where we find ourselves right now, where your kids are learning in this hybrid model or in an online distance place, what are some of the um, what are some of the gaps that are that remain? Where are the needs in the community you serve, um, and what are some of the things that um, that 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 could be done to, to to help meet those some of those gaps and some of the needs? Well, certainly food is a problem. I mean, you're reading about it, um, how many people are first time food bank visitors. I'm sure Greg Raskin spoke to that last Friday. Um, unfortunately, I had a conflict. I so wanted to hear what he had to say. Um, and that is something that we continue to see demand for is food. Um, so meeting that will continue to be a challenge. We uh, thankfully, just I learned about we're in the final furlong of a big grant opportunity this morning that will allow us to continue to provide assistance to our families for food and diapers. That's the other thing. It's just very costly and necessary in our population. Um, I would say the other area that I it keeps me up at night is rent um, and if the prospect of eviction. And um, now with so many families going on six, nine months of having lost their job. We're seeing a lot of high stress and inability to pay utilities and or rent. And I don't see that abating in the near future. Um, we, I joined the Board of Housing Solutions in, in April, which is um, a, a newer nonprofit that is devoted to um, ending homelessness. And Becky Gligo, who you've seen, I'm sure, in the paper, just became our full-time executive director. And we've been partnering as an agency with Housing Solutions. Um, and we actually shared a portion of our funding uh, as a community action agency, our Community Service Block Grant CARES Act funding, with them to be able to stand up a new service at the courthouse to help families with um, prevent eviction. So representing families at the courthouse and making sure they have the services they need. And that's all brand new. Um, there's just so much work that has to be done in the rent space that I worry about um, that we are just starting to crack the code on as a community and certainly as an agency. Karen, I'm hearing a lot of talk about cooperative work collegial relationships with other agencies. Is that a recent development at CAP or is that something that, that's been the case from the very beginning? Well, I will say CAP has always had um, good partnerships and with other agencies, but as part of our most recent strategic plan in our community success space, we've declared what we believe we're good at, where our core competencies are, and also delineated what we believe we need help with from others. And um, I think maybe approaching that bucket of work with increased humility of, uh, we know you're good at this, can you help us out with that? Um, so I, I think we have pivoted as a, as a senior team of being more deliberate about engaging with others and not trying to do it all ourselves. Um, the rent assistance is a great example I know we're going to get more money out of the second CARES Act, um, 
for rent assistance. And as I said, we nearly broke the machine last year. Um, so I want to be very mindful of that. And I have reached out in the community to um, some folks who are heavy into rent assistance saying, um, how would you like to help us with this portion of our increased funding? So we don't have to have all these uh, duplicative services across the community. That doesn't make any sense. We just need to make sure our families get served um, if we send them into a bigger pool of, of need. So those are the kinds of things I'm thinking a lot about. Um, YWCA is another potential partner for us that we've worked with in the past. I've done a lot of work with Julie Davis on building a racial, racially uh, um, aware and a learning organization. We're doing a lot of work in that um, building an uh, anti-racist organization kind of work. Uh, we're now talking more about the ESL space and what we can do together to serve our families, for example. So I would say, yes, there is. And I think that's out of the crisis of the pandemic. We've come together a lot as a nonprofit community in many venues to try to figure out where are the opportunities to work more collaboratively. Appreciate that. Rabbi? It's beautiful and just a very hopeful thing to be thinking about the ways in which organizations can strengthen each other and share their resources and and their their skill sets. It's it's uh, it's very helpful for me. I'm I'm gonna uh, go to a question that was from Alice in the chat, and as I'm doing that, also remind you and remind everyone here that we're delighted to take questions from 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 everyone here um, and just to put them in the chat. Um, so we can incorporate them in, in our conversation. But Alice asks, and it dovetails with some of the things we've, we've just been talking about, if CAP could hope for anything in a new democratic uh, budget, uh, what, what's, uh, what's, what's the big hope, what's the big dream? Um, and specifically more slots uh, for Head Start or what else? Um, certainly we would hope for more funding for high quality early education uh, in the community. Um, as big as we are, we've calculated that we're only meeting about 14% of the need in the community for high quality early ed. Now there are other providers, I'm not counting all of the providers like Educare across the town. There are some other very high quality providers, but overall there is still a huge unmet need uh, for high quality early, early childhood services. Um, I would say uh, we are hopeful of increased funding in the early Head Start space, um, which is birth through three. The great thing about our, the state and the city is how much, how well we're doing in reaching four-year-olds uh, through the public schools. And we are seeing a sharp decrease in demand at Cap Tulsa for four-year-old services over the last many years, actually. Um, so we are, uh, trying to reposition our service delivery to birth through three um, and reducing the number of four-year-olds. So I would slightly edit Alice's suggestion, but I certainly include it that more federal funding to serve more children um, is, is essential for our community and a big hope of ours. Karen, these last four years have been so challenging for many of us who look toward the federal government for funding and solutions, was there a shift between the last two administrations in the level of enthusiasm, level of support for the work that CAP Tulsa does between the second term of the Obama administration and the term just now concluding? I have to say, 
and it may come as a surprise when I do, um, that we did not see any wavering of support for Head Start or for early childhood education services during this most recent administration. Um, our funding was robust. We, there, was even, there were even a couple of incremental funding opportunities for more slots. They call them in the Head Start world, children are slots. Um, there were a couple of increased opportunities during uh, this past administration. Um, we didn't see any funding waiver as a community action agency through our community service block grant funding. And I would say through the CARES Act, as I said, we, we were blessed with um, a lot of incremental funding as, a, as both Head Start and Community Action, which was all approved during the current administration. So um, honestly, no, uh, I think there was great support for also increased childcare dollars flowing to the states. Um, so uh, that, I'm happy to report that. Now, where there, I did see some um, areas of opportunity where there were a lot of people who um, were left the Head Start administration, the uh, administration for children and families is where Head Start is administered. There was a lot of revolving door at the top. I think we saw that early on in the current administration with so many um, people that left their positions and they weren't backfilled quickly. And you, you heard about it in, you know, in defense and, and a lot of big uh, prominent sectors. It was true as well for a lot of these more administrative sectors. So we saw a lot of um, administrative bureaucracy at a much higher level, I'll say, just due to lack of people in, in their roles uh, available to answer questions and move paper along. Um, so we did see some squirrely grant funding releases and weird deadlines, and um, but nothing that we, we didn't uh, surmount. <laughs> so it didn't, uh, it didn't affect our operations, but it was certainly visibly chaotic, I'll call it, at the top. Mm -hmm. Now we've uh, got a question from Aaron in the chat, and this question is about outreach. Um, how do you reach out to uh, new parents, to prospective families and clients and um, uh, uh, participants in, in the CAP program? And also how has that outreach uh, effort uh, shifted uh, during, during times of COVID? That's a super question. Um, so we uh, have a lot of community partners who know about our services. Um, we work closely with Children First um, for, well, so sooner, um, sooner start uh, is Children First here to refer children, especially children with, um, who have had special needs and um, they have automatic placement in programs like ours. So that's a great referral source for us. We also partner with um, BEST uh, the birth through eight strategy of Tulsa. We are one of the implementing partners that's funded by GKFF and Sophia Papas is their managing director. So um, they are in the hospitals with newborns, uh, moms of newborns, and they are helping refer directly to CAP to our home visiting program. And that's been a great partnership and it's put taken a lot of pressure off our team to find new children because they are referring um, high needs uh, families to us. And that's been a, a true blessing. It has been harder during COVID. Um, however, we made a decision in the fall not to, not to backfill our open seats. So with our, we only are serving, well, we were only serving returning families starting in 
um, August. So we're not serving our full enrollment. The federal government is okay with that this year. Um, however, we have actually started backfilling those slots into our distance learning um, in December, and they were supposed to start in a hybrid model in January. So we've we've added about 265 children right now who are waiting for to come to school. Hopefully February 4th, fingers crossed, or February 1st. Um, as far as newborns go, therefore, we haven't really accepted uh, many newborns uh, yet, but that will that will come in time. And we usually have a very long waiting list at Cap Tulsa for birth uh, through two year olds. Um, it's usually not a problem. Uh, families have to apply. They have to qualify through our criteria. Their application gets scored and through a computerized system. So there's no um, human intervention and in who gets the next spot. And um, that scoring criteria is approved by our board and our parent policy council that's in compliance with the Head Start Act. Um, so we always have a pretty robust waiting list as well for our infant and toddler slots. Our challenge has been more with three and four year olds over time. That's why you'll hear ads on the radio sometimes um, for that we have open spots, but generally it's not for newborns. Those are coveted slots at Cap Tulsa. Karen, so interesting. Can we move in the direction of the issue of racism in both society and agency work in Tulsa? I think if any one of us has bumped up against a key issue in this space over the last few years. It's the idea of institutionalized racism or systemic racism. Could you, as a, an executive director of a prominent agency in Tulsa dealing with the poor, could you talk to us a little bit about versions of institutionalized racism that you encounter as an agency director? I'd love to have your perspective on this. I'm so glad you asked me about this. This is one of my favorite topics, actually. Um, so in 2020, um, I think a lot of people have termed the fact that we had two, two pandemics, right? <laughs> um, we had the pandemic related to COVID and the pandemic related to, to racism um, and inequity in our society. Um, we have, CAP has had a core value around um, diversity, equity, and inclusion going back um, since my whole tenure. I've been at the agency over 12 years. That was something we started then. And it's only become more enhanced uh, over time um, in our work. And I wrote the DEI strategy last year. It got approved by the board in September. Um, so that's why I say this is one of my favorite topics. Um, as an agency, CAP employees um, self-identify as uh, those who self-identify as a person of color represent around 58% uh, of our workforce. So I am really proud of that. Um, uh, that's still, that is partly to do with um, uh, the communities that we serve. A lot of our teachers are very drawn to this work who are also people of color themselves. Um, and we also, but we also have a lot of folks who are moving up through our organization very deliberately. So um, trying to make sure we're nurturing folks at every level. Um, our biggest opportunity as an agency remains at our leadership table. So the 16 of us are, um, are, are too white. 
And um, we only have a few people who are self-identify as a person of color. Um, so my, uh, my goal in the next few years is to change that profoundly. We've set numeric goals around that. Um, I'd like to see a third of those folks in three, within three years be person of color, but then we have to build a pipeline of the workforce. So we're measuring, we're measuring everything. I have some new reporting going back for uh, since September of um, all of our applicants by race, all of our interviewees, all of our new hires by race, by position, and really trying to track that and make it prominent for the team so we can be very deliberate in our, in our decisions to promote from within and also to hire. So we can try to change the leadership table in a few years time. We're also trying to do the same thing with the board. Um, but in addition to just changing the, the, the numbers, um, I'm really trying to build a racial learning organization. Um, teachers, over time, I have been um, part of many opportunities that involve employee relations at different schools where there are pockets of, um, of prejudice, there are pockets of um, sort of subgroups of people coming out against others. Um, and we've had to deal with that through employee relations, through, dis through disciplinary action, but that's a bad way to deal with these sorts of things. Um, we need to hit it on the front end and um, develop understanding and develop appreciation and mutual respect. So I've, uh, I engaged in a number of conversations throughout last year. I call them CAP conversations on racism and equity. I offered 10 opportunities for Zoom calls like this to all 630 employees in June in Ju of July. And then again in um, November to just talk about how we're feeling, how we're doing, how we're reacting to what's going on in the bigger context, what's going on in our own lives, um, how we can improve at our schools, soliciting um, input from employees that went into the strategic plan. Um, so we're really trying to make, to normalize the conversation about racism. I, I decided that there's no other way to talk around this than other than to talk about it just directly. And I've just uh, settled yesterday on doing a book study next month. You probably know the book. So you want to talk about race um, uh, by, uh, I'll, I'll butcher her name. I can spell it, but I probably can't say it. Um, uh, so it's a great book. And I've, one of my school leaders who is um, African-American, she has agreed to co-facilitate the book study with me. So I feel like this is a huge win. Um, and I look forward to doing that. I also did a conversation, another study on the, around the documentary film 13th uh, last year to try to, again, just talk about this stuff and talk about what's haunting all of us um, especially our employees of color. And they were very forthcoming during these calls. I was very delighted with the level of respectful engagement. So I hope that answers yes. in some way what you were looking mm -hmm. for. Yes, and uh, for those, I, I put a Amazon link Thank just because it was the first uh, search item that came up um, uh, uh, to, the, to that book. So if you want to check out the title and uh, and, and more information yourselves, it's it's right there. Um, uh, we've got some more questions in the in the chat. 
um, which I'm uh, paying attention to. And, and two of them uh, come together. And we made some reference towards the beginning of this conversation about this transition to distance learning and this new way of, um, of operating. And so one of the questions is about how families themselves have adapted to this challenge. I have a three-year-old myself uh, in the house and the idea of screens and, and, and just facilitating that reality, childcare, making sure uh, uh, pastels don't end up on every piece of furniture, um, <laughs> although that happens. Um, so it's the technological resources, but then there's another question, um, it, uh, which is about specifically uh, library resources and other resources in the community beyond what CAP might have um, and how does CAP uh, uh, connect folks to um, other other areas of resources. Uh, do kids uh, have library cards is actually the specific uh, question. Uh, many of, well, I'll, end with, I'll start with that end question because that's an easy one. Many of our four-year-olds do have library cards and they do visits to the libraries that are in the neighborhoods where their schools are. So that's part of, um, that's part of their, their field trips and activities when libraries are open, obviously. Um, so in terms of the technology, we did a survey of families in the spring to understand who had a need for uh, technology, for a laptop, um, and so that when we were going to do distance learning, we knew what we were up against. Um, we were able to procure um, a, a hundreds of refurbished Chromebooks um, that were available um, in the in August, uh, and we we distributed them in drive-through distribution events to families, so they had a way to connect with us if they wanted that. Um, so we uh, have our IT team are probably the busiest folks at Cap Tulsa, um, trying to get all of us up and running and successful remotely, and then trying to procure literally hundreds of devices and uh, distribute them to families over time. That's how we equipped them. And we also provided lots of hotspots devices too, to make sure they could connect to the internet. We also worked with, we were part of that uh, initiative that Mayor Bynum uh, put in place to make sure that internet connectivity was available all across the community. And we made sure our families knew about that. And that also um, Cox had a very deep discount program that we made sure our families we're part of the whole TPS push. So every time there's something like that available, one of us is there saying, what about Cap Tulsa families? Just to make sure that we're in the mix. Um, so we've been successful in, in providing all those resources to families. Now, whether it's actually um, being used in a way that everyone feels good about is what I was alluding to earlier. Um, there's no such thing as distance learning with birth to four-year-olds. It's distance family engagement is what it is. A parent has to be there to operate the Zoom and operate the PC. And so uh, we're very cognizant of that. And when we started this process, we had a lot of engagement with families. It was pretty high. You know, people are excited because nobody thought it'd be going on this long. Um, and then we measure it because we measure everything. And the, the level of engagement has diminished over time. And so when I look at our attendance and we measure that in very new and unusual ways during COVID, um, from August to December, it was like 64% between the distance learning and the hybrid model. That's pretty low, I think. <laughs> and it's certainly not what we'd hope, but families are, they're maxed out. They are tapped out. They're trying to work. 
They've got other kids. Our parent policy council president has a kid in our program and then four who have graduated from our program who are all doing school in some way, shape or form while she's trying to get reengaged in the workforce. Um, that's like impossible, I think. So, um, so we're not really kidding ourselves. We're trying to do our best to provide the best we can virtually, um, but it's not, it does not take the place of the classroom experience and teachers don't like it, I will add. It's not like they love teaching small children from their, from their own living room with their kids running around either. Right. They would much rather be in the classrooms. Um, so I think that covers kind of the, the range of that, that particular set of questions. Did I miss anything? No, I don't think so. But Karen, we are totally going to run out of time because people have lots of questions still. Would you answer Alice's questions about persons without documents? Mm -hmm. How do they fit into the CAP equation? What, what, what do you have to do to allay concerns that a connection of any kind with CAP is likely to result in a visit from ICE? Yeah, um, Alice, that's a great question. Um, we, uh, so Head Start is one of the few federal programs that does not require proof, does not require proof of citizenship in order for us to um, offer services to the child and family. Therefore, we don't ask. Therefore, we don't know. So um, there is no status question on our enrollment form. So, um, and, I would say families know this. I mean, most people know about CAP by word of mouth. So 40% of our families are Hispanic. Um, a third speak Spanish at home as their primary language. So we know within that population, there is likely a large percentage who are undocumented that comes through just conversations with family support. But we don't know for sure. And we don't, uh, they're not precluded from work, working with us in any of our programs except those that might be federally funded like the Career Advanced Workforce Development Program, they can't partake in that. Um, so we're really careful about, we've been very careful about convenings, especially when these issues have gotten very hot in our community and there's threats of raids and things like that. Um, all of our school leaders and front desk staff are trained. If somebody shows up, we do not have to give them any information and we do not have to introduce them to that child or that parent who might be in the building, we don't have to do that. And they are all trained to basically uh, say no <laughs> um, and call legal <laughs> if anything like that happens. Um, we don't, we're very cognizant about gatherings, calling families together, uh, you know, Spanish, uh, if it's a Spanish only session and it's related to some topic, we know that the attendance might lack uh, if families are worried about this topic. Right now, there isn't that level of worry, but in the last few years, it's kind of ebbed and flowed. So we're very sensitive to it, and we just try to reach the families through the schools and through family support and that direct contact. Interesting. Bye-bye. Another question from the chat. This one comes from a really talented educational leader uh, in our community, Sandy Tilkin. Uh, <laughs> um, who asks a question about educator training. Um, how do you train your teachers? You've spoken a lot about how they're trained to respond in one way if someone comes in the building and call legal, or um, they're having to solve problems teaching from their homes. How are they prepared? What are, what's in their toolkit um, to be able to do all of this wonderful work that they're doing? 
Right. Um, so our teachers uh, are receive a lot of ongoing training um, in the early childhood development realm, I think is what my mother was asking about. Um, and that is, uh, we, they have, we have instructional coaches in all of our schools. Uh, we have a teaching and learning team and a research and innovation team. And they are bringing best practices and new tools from across the country um, to try it with our teachers um, to deploy during professional development days. So right now there's a huge focus by our team on two things driving equity in the classrooms. So through our DEI strategy, we've adopted the um, NACES, the National Association for the Education of Young Children, their equity statement, we've adopted that. Um, and the teachers are being trained specifically on guarding against their own potential bias um, towards various subgroups in their classroom. Um, black boys is the national topic in this sphere, but not exclusively. Um, and there's a lot of research around that. So we're trying to equip teachers to recognize their own biases and to make sure they're providing an equitable classroom experience for all the children in their classroom. We're doing that through training. Um, all of our teachers are doing a book study right now during COVID on a NACI book. Um, that is just a beautiful book. I have my copy here because I read it too, each and every child. Um, and that really, helps paint a very vivid picture for what do I have to do differently in my classroom to make sure I'm reaching all these different children, immigrants, children who are dual language learners, black boys, Hispanic kids, whatever it might be. Um, so, and we're also making sure our libraries in our classrooms are equipped with a series of beautiful books that speak to all these different race and equity um, issues through the lens of a young child. There are many great recommendations in this book that I've been making sure with various folks, are these on our load list? Are these in our libraries? And they assure me they are. Um, so that's one thing we've been focusing on. And I'd say the other big thrust of training in the last two to three years, three maybe, is uh, social emotional learning for young children and helping uh, teachers who are struggling with children whose behavior they find challenging. We used to call them children with challenging behaviors, but uh, we flipped that equation because really any kind of challenging behavior in a classroom is, uh, is a cry for help by a child that, um, from, that they are stressed from some domain in their life. And it's the teacher's job to figure out what that is and how to reach that child and how to deal with that. Outsized behavior sometimes for very small people. So, that's a huge thrust right, that we've been working on. And a lot of that comes from having, having the teachers navigate their own social emotional needs and their own mental well-being to be able to then confront the realities of the kids in their rooms. There was a study I just saw recently that OU did that included our teachers and educare teachers and some other um, early childhood teachers in Tulsa who more than a quarter of them have four or more ACEs and our ACEs scores, and I'm, this group is probably familiar with ACEs. That's that is that's incredible and Thank scary. You. And so they're coming to school every day with all of this personal baggage and difficulty that they're trying to overcome. And then we're asking them to turn around and deal with that with the children and families they're serving. So we're trying to reconcile this. Our teachers look a lot like our kids and have the same social <clears throat> emotional needs yeah. of our kids. So how do you help the adults self-regulate so they can help the children learn to self-regulate? So lots of work in Cap Tulsa around this. And we even have a pilot right now at Eugene Field with a, 
an expert out of the Bay Area called a restorative coaching model um, to increase that toolkit specifically with those nine teachers. If it works, we will be rolling that out everywhere. That's, that's a long answer, but there's a lot going on. The frustration is that we have run out of time with lots more questions to ask the demography of poverty in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I have one final question. Can you give us two lines on this? Somebody hands you, Karen Kylie, $10 million. You don't have to check with the board of directors. You don't have to check with anyone. You get to spend it on the agency in whatever way you choose. Give us two lines on what you do with $10 million. First of all, I would pay my teachers more. I would pay my teacher assistants more. Um, it's a hard job. They're undervalued by society. Um, and I think that would go a long way to solving a lot of their life problems and also um, their sense of self-efficacy in their roles and value by society. And therefore they would be able to be better teachers. Um, and then I would expand the number of classrooms we have, uh, maybe in partnership with others. I don't think we need to build a bunch of new beautiful buildings. I think there's enough early childhood going on across Tulsa that we could help uh, increase the quality by partnering. Um, so I would do that. And I would also fund more of our English as a second language program, which does not have a dedicated source of funding. It's a tough sell. It's one of my priorities this year because there's a huge demand for that. And I think our families deserve the opportunity to learn English um, so that they can further their skills as parents and potentially as workers uh, in our society. Karen Kylie, thank you. This brings us to the conclusion of this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Karen Kylie. Our sincerest thanks and appreciation for her participation. Next week, we'll be joined by Jeff Martin, co-founder of Booksmart Tulsa. Thanks to you all for listening, and we'll look forward to being with you next time. Take care.